Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So I'm going to go back just a little bit on what we touched on last week. But you remember this is where the Buddha is teaching the direct effects of jhana meditation, meaning being mindful of the breath in the body. And as feelings or thoughts or thoughts attached to a feeling arise and pass away, a thought attached to a feeling is an emotion. As those arise and pass away, we simply recognize their impermanence and come back to the sensation of breathing. And as a result, fabrications fall away, they calm. And you remember from the dependent origination states from ignorance of four noble truths come fabrications. From those fabrications comes, in the Buddha's words, this entire mass of suffering or dukkha. And so as we continue in the Anapanasati Sutta, the Buddha's words, and let, let me just mention too, uh, I typically train, uh, change um, male references to neutral references, simply because, uh, just to be sensitive, it, it, it's just a misnomer, a misunderstanding that the Buddha didn't want women in the original Sangha, and they refused to teach women. That was just a complete lie, uh, unfortunately promulgated by Theravadan Buddhists, mostly in this in, in modern times. Uh, but in this sutta and in this audience, I'm just going to use the male uh, word here. He trains himself, I will breathe in, sensitive to the mind. He trains himself, I will breathe out, sensitive to the mind. So again, just to go back on what we touched on last week, this is an instruction to why we're breathing in, be sensitive to the mind. It, as, a, it, as a consequence of ever-deepening concentration, we are now sensitive to the mind. And what does that mean, sensitive to the mind? And why does an awakened human being have to teach something like that? Because the nature, and you've heard me say this often, it is almost as accurate, accurate to describe the first noble truth as there is dukkha as saying there is distraction because it is the preoccupation with dukkha that distracts us away from living our lives in this present moment. And so out of fabrications comes distraction or stress and suffering. So we train ourselves breathing in, sensitive to the fact that I have a mind, that I, I'm thinking. And that's all the Buddha means here. He's not teaching us a trait to chase after some cosmic mind or something that is uh, superhuman or extraordinary. It's simply the, the thinking process that human beings are, are born into, but to be sensitive to the fact that it's ongoing, that we're doing this. They train, he trains himself, I breathe in, sensitive to the mind. I know that I'm thinking. My mind is, is, is developing concentration and calm so I can recognize my thoughts. I have a perspective now. He trains himself. I will breathe in, calming the mind. So again, I'm not breathing in to calm the mind. As a consequence of doing authentic jhana practice as intended, I breathe in and the mind naturally calms. He trains himself. I breathe out, calming the mind. Notice the cycle. The Buddha is not just saying take a breath and your mind calms. He's saying, be mindful of the in-breath, calming the mind, and the out-breath, calming the mind. Notice the calming effect. Don't manufacture the calming effect, because then we're just chasing after something. It's continued eye-making. 
And again, the, the, the languaging going back to this, the beginning of the sutta and the teachings on jhana meditation remind us of just this. The Buddha continues, he trains himself, I will breathe in, steadying the mind. So again, these aren't even different aspects of deepening concentration. That's not what I meant to say. These aren't different mind states to, to manufacture or seek after. They're all aspects of ever-deepening concentration. So I train myself, breathing in, the mind begins to steady deeper and deeper. I breathe out, or he trains himself, I will breathe out, as a consequence, steadying the mind. Again, I, I don't need to do anything else but engage in jhana meditation as directed, steadying my mind. He trains himself, I will breathe out, releasing the mind. Let me just read it another way. He trains himself, I will breathe out, and as a consequence, I am releasing the mind. He trains himself, I will breathe in, focusing on inconstancy. And I think I'm going to change this word to, he trains himself, I will breathe in, noticing inconstancy, because that's really the intention of the Buddha's Dhamma, to notice impermanence in all things, but most importantly, and ultimately, in our mundane, moment-by-moment thoughts. And ultimately, that leads us to the impermanence of one thought, that I need to be different than I am in this moment. He trains himself, I will breathe out. Should I say it that way? I will breathe out noticing inconstancy, noticing impermanence. He trains himself, I breathe in, I will breathe in, noticing dispassion. The beginning of the cessation of eye-making. I'm no longer passionate about maintaining this fabricated self. He trains himself, I will breathe in, noticing, I will breathe out, noticing dispassion. He trains himself, I will breathe in, noticing cessation. And again, notice, and you'll, well, you'll notice it as I continue, that the Buddha is not talking about the culmination of the path, letting go of all views, ignorance of Four Noble Truths, but in this moment, I am noticing the cessation of ongoing eye-making. Where do we notice it? In that breath. In that moment that I, be, I am mindful of the in-breath and the out-breath, I have ceased continued eye-making. It is the interruption of ignorance. And this is the reason why the Buddha taught jhana meditation and nothing else. He taught jhana meditation to deepen concentration so that we can do just this. Interrupt the ongoing progression of one thought, one ignorant thought followed by another ignorant thought. That is maintained by the second noble, noble truth, craving for, craving for an, an existence rooted in ignorance and clinging to the fabrications that maintain that ignorance. Right here, I am focusing on noticing, noticing the cessation of that ignorance. And for most of us, after that in-breath and out-breath, our minds are going to go back to something rooted in ignorance. And when we do that, we all know what to do. We take another breath. And so doing, as the Buddha is describing here, our ever-deepening levels of jhana are manifesting in all the ways described here. He trains himself, I will breathe out, noticing cessation. He trains himself, I will breathe in, noticing relinquishment. He trains himself, I will breathe out, noticing relinquishment. Again, relinquishment of what? What? Relinquishment relinquishment of ignorance of Four Noble Truths and everything that we've attached to that. 
Then the Buddha says, and it, it, an incredibly important admonition almost, remember, how, remember the setting of the sutta now. The Buddha's teaching this sutta to a couple thousand people using accomplished monks, this is early in the Sangha before women join, accomplished monks as an example of authentic, effective jhana practice. It's not meant to be instruction of any kind. Again, how it's, it's been misunderstood and misapplied. So in that context, he says, this is how mindfulness of in and out breathing is developed and pursued so as to be of great benefit. Again, reinforcing, and again, talking to the audience. These are people that were so-called spiritual teachers, just like today, who are coming across an endless number of so-called spiritual teachers and grasping on and clinging to their teachings and their different methods of meditation. Remember where the Buddha talks about the different meditation practices he, he developed, mastered, and quickly discarded as not leading to his goal. So he knows of what he speaks. And he's saying, this is the one that is of great benefit. Let me just skip over. Let me, I'm going to say that again. This is how mindfulness of in and out breathing of jhana meditation is developed and pursued so as to be of great benefit, these four frames of reference, these four foundations of mindfulness. And this is truly the foundation of everything the Buddha taught, but we have to understand the application. Again, even the Satipatthana Sutta is taught almost everywhere as the whole sutta is, is instruction for meditation. And we gave, we have a, I think we had eight classes on the Satipatthana Sutta where we go into that, how the, the different things that are misapplied as meditation practice, again, are just simply developments of jhana practice, practice within the framework of the Eightfold Path. The Buddha continues. Now, how is mindfulness of the in-breath and the out-breath appropriately developed? Again, we could do it, if we don't have the right instructions, we could do this inappropriately. That's why the Buddha is using these words and, and, and literally admonishing the people in front of him. Pay attention. Now, how is mindfulness of the in-breath and the out-breath out -breath appropriately developed so as to bring the four frames of reference or the four foundations of mindfulness to their culmination? Again, the point of the Dhamma. Profound concentration supporting the refined mindfulness that can hold in mind the entire Eightfold Path. That is the Buddha's Dhamma. That's all he taught. And the Buddha answers that rhetorical question. On whatever occasion a monk Breathing in long is mindful of breathing in long or breathing out long is mindful of breathing out long or breathing in short is mindful of breathing in short or breathing out short is mindful of breathing out short. They continue to train their mind. In almost every tradition that uses these two suttas, the Anapanasati and the Satipatthana Sutta, take this as instructions that sometimes when we meditate, we should, be, we should only generate long breaths and be mindful of that. And sometimes we should generate short breaths. And again, the Buddha just says, what, however you find your breath, notice that that's how you're breathing. They train themselves to be mindful of a long breath or a short breath, whatever is occurring. In other words, don't be distracted by breath manipulation techniques just as he was taught and discarded. Just as almost every tradition teaches that uses meditation teaches some variation of breath control. Then the Buddha says, I will breathe in and out 
sensitive to the body, meaning bringing mindfulness to the fore to what is occurring and uniting the mind within the body. I have a body. I am breathing in into this body, mindful that I have a body. Why is that so important? Because when we unite, the whole point of a well-concentrated mind is to unite a mind in its body, its housing, if you will, and keep it there. How do we keep it there? Through concentration and refined mindfulness. Because life, a human life can only be experienced in this body with one caveat. The mind has to be united in that body. Human life cannot be experienced any other way, including wishing for something other than this human life. That's the Buddha's teaching on anatta, the not-self characteristic, and we talk about that often. The Buddha continues. Let me just check something. Okay. The Buddha continues. He trains himself. I will breathe in and out. I will breathe in and breathe out, calming bodily fabrications. Calming bodily fabrication. Remember dependent origination. Then the Buddha says, on this occasion, meaning when that occurs, the monk remains focused on the breath in the body, in and of itself, meaning free of any distraction, ardent, alert, and mindful, while putting aside craving and distress with reference to the world. What does that last mean? Putting aside craving and distress with reference to the world. It means putting aside the need for me to be any different than I am in this moment. Not off my cushion when I'm awakened a little bit more. Not off my cushion when I'm a little bit more awakened. Right here and right now in jhana meditation. Putting in this moment, I am putting aside craving and distress in reference to the world. The only way to do that is to cease eye-making. And we do that every time we unite our mind and our body. And the Buddha is teaching us we don't, it's not something we grasp after. It's something we recognize as a consequence of proper meditation, jhana meditation, within the proper framework, the Eightfold Path. And it's not possible any other way. In other words, if we decide, like me, just as an example, my first meditation method formal that I ever learned was TM. And so perhaps I'm still enamored with the TM technique. And I like everything else that the Buddha teaches, but I'm not going to let go of TM. It ain't going to work, folks. Excuse the language. It ain't going to work. Jhana meditation is required for deepening concentration. I practiced TM for quite a few years. It doesn't deepen concentration except on a surface level. Jhana meditation is the meditation method the Buddha taught so that we can have the concentration necessary for the refined mindfulness. Again, the very specific mindfulness that the Buddha taught to hold in mind the eight factors of the Eightfold Path. That's the only mindfulness that he taught was useful. While putting aside craving and distress with reference to the world. I'm just skipping over some of my comments that you all read this week. Then the Buddha says, I tell you, monks, the in and out breath is unsurpassed as a body among bodies. Again, what does it mean, body among bodies? He's referencing to all the different meditation techniques that are out there and incorporated in the endless bodies that are practicing it. Unsurpassed as a body among bodies. It's a a steadying, calming, effective influence in this body among all the other bodies out there. The Buddha is saying, stop looking out there. Use jhana meditation and the framework of the Eightfold Path to deeply look within and what your own thinking is bringing you. 
because that's the only thing that we can bring resolution to, obviously. We can't bring any resolution to the world or the people in the world. If we could, the things in the world wouldn't be going on, would they? But we can resolve conflict in our mind. And in so doing, we then end conflict in the world. And I'm not talking about stopping crazy people. By ending conflict in our mind, there is no conflict in the world. Why? Because we understand what's occurring. We understand it's a natural consequence of mind root, minds rooted in ignorance. It doesn't mean the bomb might not fall, won't fall on our heads. It could. Again, the Buddha's not teaching salvation. He's teaching understanding. And we need it more than ever, don't we? After the last two years and what's going on now. And this is a way to understand it in a profound way without reacting to it, without falling into hate. And it sure is easy to hate one person today, isn't it? But if we do, we've lost our minds. On the occasion that on the occasion that one remains focused on the body, free of distraction, ardent, alert, and mindful, now they are putting aside craving and distress with reference to the world through jhana practice, not through magic, not through establishing yourself in some non-physical realm or hoping that you'll get there through merit, through direct jhana practice by integrating the eightfold path. Again, I'm just skipping over some commentary. Listen to the... um, Listen to the profound hope in the Buddha's words from 2,600 years ago. On any occasion, a monk trains himself. On any occasion that we do this. Meaning, no matter what's occurring, no matter where we are in our life, if we would just start this practice, on any occasion... A monk trains himself. I will breathe in and breathe out, sensitive to rapture, meaning, you know, the, the, the proper translation is not waiting for the apocalypse. In this sense, rapture means joyful engagement in the Dhamma. I will breathe in and breathe out, sensitive to my joyful engagement with the Dhamma. And if your joyful engagement, if you don't have that feeling of joyful engagement in the Dhamma, after a short while of jhana practice, Take a look at it as if you've actually taken true refuge in the Dhamma. And Michael, I believe you have, but if, if, I'm, if you're a little bit confused about what I'm saying, there's a section on what that truly, truly means, as I believe it. The Buddha continues, I will breathe in and breathe out, sensitive to pleasure. Again, it doesn't mean we're grasping after pleasure or even that jhana should bring us pleasure. But now, because of a dispassionate presence, I am sensitive to pleasure arising without the need for me to attach myself to it or the need for me to compulsively grasp after more. As an example, I wish I could have taken one glass of whiskey and enjoyed it rather than try to down all the whiskey in the world. One is related to sensitivity to pleasure. The other is compulsive, addictive thinking. And again, I'm using myself as an example, but human beings do that with whatever gets their fancy. Even ideas, even especially ideologies. I will breathe in and breathe out, sensitive to mental fabrications. Notice where the Buddha is leading us to. If I can breathe in and breathe out, sensitive to, noticing fabrications, for the first time in my life, I can eliminate them. But I have to know that I'm generating them before I can eliminate them, don't I? The brilliance of this man from 2,600 years ago 
never fails to astonish me, especially when I read lines like this from the Sutta. I will breathe in and breathe out. As a consequence of doing that, I'm calming mental fabrications. As a direct result of jhana medication, medication. <laughs> it is, jhana meditation integrated with the entire Eightfold Path, mental fabrications simply calm. And so when I say this is a direct path, it's a practice of ease and joy, but not for the faint of heart. This is what I mean. It is, it is precisely this simple, but because our minds are so conditioned towards ignorance and maintaining ignorance, it simply doesn't want to go here very readily. But again, the Buddha designed an eightfold path understanding the aversion to, to recognizing and abandoning ignorance. It's included in the Buddha's description of right effort. And so if we engage in right effort, incorporating the Eightfold Path, we need do nothing else. The Buddha continues. On this occasion, the, monk remains, the monks remain focused on feelings free of distraction. Think about Think about the profundity of that one line. That I can have a feeling without engaging in eye-making. I can have a feeling just be a feeling. It doesn't turn my mind towards anything. This feeling of pleasure or pain or neither pleasure nor pain is just a feeling if I keep myself out of it. And in that way, I can fully feel for the first time in my life a feeling as it is. And now each and every moment of my life becomes meaningful. Why? Because I'm present for it. I don't need to feel any different or think any different or think any different about my feelings. So how are you feeling today? I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't matter to me. Or I might say I'm deeply saddened by worldly events, but I don't need them to be any different because I understand them. That's a Dhammic response. Sadness, joy, every feeling in between, every feeling that it's possible for a human being to have, a wise Dhamma practitioner has them and doesn't take any of it personal. And that's where all meaning resides. I tell you, monks, that mindfulness of in-breath and out-breaths can be seen as a singular feeling among feelings. It starts uniting ourselves into this just in this one feeling, what it means to be truly alive. A singular feeling among feelings is why the monks on this occasion remain focused on feelings free of distraction, ardent, alert, and mindful while putting aside. As a direct consequence of authentic Dhamma practice, while putting aside craving and distress with reference to the world, we now are remaining disentangled from worldly events. Common peace prevails. Let me just see where I am. Um... I'm just trying to find a skillful place to stop today's class. So I'm going to do it right here. The Buddha continues, Whenever a monk trains himself, I will breathe in and breathe out, sensitive to the mind, sensitive to the thoughts that I'm having. And in, in this way, sensitive does not mean clinging. 
It's simply being mindful of it in a sensitive, meaning dispassionate way. I breathe in and breathe out sensitive to the mind. They remain focused on the mind, free of distraction, ardent, alert, and mindful. Again, how the Buddha teaches mindfulness while putting aside craving and distress with reference to the world. Let me just put a bookmark here, see if I got it. Yes, okay. Uh, I'm going to stop there. We'll, con- we'll probably finish the Anapanasati uh, Sutta in next week's class, but I think that's a, a good place to stop. Um, so in this sutta, again, remembering the setting, the Buddha is teaching the results of authentic practice. It's not instruction for practice. We develop what the Buddha is referring to here through integrating the entire Eightfold Path as our Dhamma practice. But remember, the Eightfold Path is a limiting path. You heard me reference often wise restraint at the point of contact. That's Dhamma practice. That is how the Eightfold Path limits us, gives us focus on what is most important to remain mindful of. These eight factors of the Eightfold Path. The Buddha spent 45 years of his life teaching many thousands of suttas to do just that and how to recognize, as importantly as doing just that, how to recognize when we're grasping after or clinging to things that the Buddha simply never taught. And this is what brings that common peace that an awakened human being can teach us. This is true refuge in the Dhamma. So that's today's class. Again, I think we'll finish this next week. Um, I'm going to invite Michael on since he's a, he just joined us today. Uh, bring him in first. Michael, what do you think of today's class? I'm not sure if I have more thoughts other than, you know, it is strictly the Buddhist teachings. You cut out all of the things and you interpret them in a way that reflects the early Buddhist teachings as I understand them. That's it. Great. I'm glad you noticed it. <laughs> I, I have a feeling you have a you've you've put it quite a bit of time in this though. So uh, it, it's, I'm 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 essentially a anagarika who is pre monastic in limbo. I left last year after renunciation to ordain in Southeast Asia, but I was wow. deported as a result of COVID. So I am in process of waiting to go back. Wow. So I've been doing this for like 25 years, and I've got a strong focus in early Buddhist teachings and eliminating, uh, I guess, the flourishes of the Abhidhamma and completely excluding the Visuddhimagga. Uh, uh, again, I think I'm, your I'm, teachings are in line. I'm so I'm so pleased you join us. I hope I hope you do again. Uh, yeah, the the uh, Abhidhamma uh, has corrupted minds for many years, and you know it, it, it's just the way it is. Uh, but it's 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 important that people recognize that it, and they. If if they made me emperor of the of all of Buddhism, I'd get it out of the out of the Pali Canon. But they're not likely to do that anytime soon. I, again, I'm so glad you joined us, Michael. Hello, Dominic. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Our pleasure. Hey. So, uh, <laughs> my thoughts. Uh, you know, you emphasize a lot that there is nothing magical or mystical about Buddha. But just listening to you about the benefits of the jhana meditation uh, sounds quite magical to me. <laughs> so, I agree. It's difficult to imagine you can achieve such uh, peace of mind. And yeah, as you said, uh, other techniques of meditation, at least the one I've been given, they just cost more dukkha. Yeah. 
uh, they want me to do something which is impossible and because I cannot do it, I just suffer more. So, uh, but I see also when I hear you talk uh, for like three minutes, fine. Then for one minute, you just go blah, 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 in my mind, you know? Uh, and But that, <laughs> then I just go, okay, now I breathe in, now I breathe out, yeah. and then I'm back. Uh, I have to do this a lot, but it's getting better. So. Yeah. That, <laughs> Thanks. That, uh, thank you. That may, again, you're, you're practicing the Dhamma. You're using jhana as it's intended, not, not just on our cushion. You know, whenever we find ourselves getting distracted. And, you know, I, again, I, I've, uh, I, I fortunately have grown past the notion that I need miracles in my life. But honestly, if there is one miracle, it's that these teachings are still available to us 2,600 years ago. Despite all the corruption, this, this brilliant man's teachings are there. You know, if I can find them, anybody, you know, I, I don't have anything special going on. But uh, and it, it's the only thing that ever changed. Well, besides giving up, uh, I, I alluded to it earlier, besides giving up drugs and alcohol, it's the one thing that's actually made a difference in my life. And, you know, it's just remarkable. Thank you, Dominic. You. Hello, Tom. Good evening, Tom. Hi, John. Hi, everyone. Um, <clears throat> yep, thanks for the teaching. Um, yeah, I think coming back to what Dominic said about how difficult it is and how uh, it, it can seem, if you take it as a... So I, I try to start my day with an intention of being... Uh, you know, um, of showing wise restraint um, and, uh, 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 you know, demonstrating concentration and all of these things. I, I set these intentions and then I get to the end of the day and I, you know, you just realize how your mind has gone all over the place and all of those intentions I had, it's really difficult to, to um, uh, you know, if you look at your day as a whole, you realize despite how fortunate I am to, to know these teachings, it's still so difficult to do. Um, and yet, um, I think the more I practice, the more I, I, I notice these moments, these moments of, of lucidity, these moments of yeah. clarity, these moments of freedom, and they just come every so often. And I just, I, I, I realize I had one this morning where, you know, I meditated in the morning and then I had two or three hours where I was just going about my work and things. And then I, uh, and then I went for a walk and I just had a moment of like letting go of just re rem remembering the teachings and just feeling such relief and liberation. And I think that's what makes all the difference is yeah. knowing that these moments are available to us, even if we continue to live in such a distracted world and we yeah. continue to live such distracted lives. Um, that's what is so inspiring for me is that it's always there and it gives so much clarity and direction to, to my life. So yeah. um, uh, something else I just quickly wanted to say was, uh, well, just a little reflection for me um, is perhaps the, um, this sutta is quite a good one to read, especially the, the part where it's saying, you know, I will breathe in, um, noticing um, uh, cessation, etc., etc. But that part of it could be a really good part to read as a almost as a habit before oh, yeah. doing jhana meditation, 
right? To really, because I, I think I was sharing a few weeks ago that I sometimes struggle. It takes me five or 10 minutes before I even realize I'm meditating. Uh, even though I am meditating, I, my mind is all over the place. So I was thinking that might be a good, might be a good um, little, that passage there, just to read it and to read it slowly and to, and to, to help to sort of focus the mind before going into uh, actual jhana. So you know, that's something yeah. I'm going to maybe a, a little takeaway from, from the class for me. Yeah, I think that I, I hear that from a lot of students that it, you know, the, it takes them five or ten minutes to feel like they're getting somewhere in their meditation. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, but as long as you're engaging in the method, even if it doesn't feel like it, you're deepening your concentration. And, and the result of that is just what you described, Tom, that it's so important to recognize these moments or hours of liberation from ignorance because that's what encourages continued Dhamma practice. It's not... It's not an admonition of a Buddha or, you know, some crazy bald guy from Pennsylvania. It's our own experience with developing the Dhamma, which is why it's so important to do it correctly in the beginning so that you have the effects very quickly. Uh, and you'll notice it because, again, as concentration deepens, you simply recognize it. And, and this, this is the result. So thank you, Tom. And again, please hang on a little bit after class. Hello, Jeff. Hello, John. Hello, everybody. Um, ironically, I've had a morning of distractions, so I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll remain silent if that's okay. It's okay, my friend. I'm glad you joined us. Uh, and it looks like Mateo got, uh, bumped off or something. So, um, so we'll finish with, um, with, uh, the Karaniya Metasutta as we always do. But Michael, I want to just let you know, um, if you have any questions, looking at my site or from today, just feel free anytime to send me an email uh, or if you'd just like to to have a conversation, I, I would love that with you. So uh, I look forward to, to uh, some interaction or seeing you again soon. Uh, and I also teach on Tuesday evenings. This is East Coast, United States time, Tuesday evenings and Saturday mornings. Uh, and I Zoom them as well. So they're, they're uh, uh, the schedule's on the website. So I'm glad Excellent. you joined us. Thank you very much for having me. My, our pleasure. Here. All right, we'll finish with... Uh, ah, there's Mateo. Good. Let me see if Mateo would like to add anything. Welcome back, my friend. Oh, oh there, sorry, sorry. There you are. You're back on. So... What what would you like to say about this morning's uh, this evening's class okay. for you? No, no, no. Oh, sorry, I apologize that I hear the other people and Dobry Vecher, Dominic, and <laughs> and uh, I'm very pleased to see also the Anagarika Michael because just a couple of days ago I came across your blog. Very funny coincidence. Wow, yeah, it is. <laughs> Uh, well, I won't say anything because, like, I go on and off. So, noble silence for me. Thanks. I'm glad you joined us, Mateo. Uh, oh, and we're gonna we have our teachers meeting uh, this Saturday. Uh, yeah, yeah, I noted. Yeah. Good, cool. good, good. All right, I will. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll see you on Saturday. We'll finish with the Karaniya Metasutta, and Tom's gonna hang on for just a minute. Let me pull it up. So these are the Buddha's words from the Karaniya Metasutta. And I, I am going to teach a class on this right after we finish this structured study. Um, but this is uh, the Karaniya Metasutta as, uh, as restored by the Amaravati Monastery in London, England. 
The Buddha's words. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state, let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class. See you all soon. Peace. Can I just add something, John, before you go? Yes, please. You, you and Michael were talking about these uh, corruptive uh, Dharma teachings. Well, I was. What, what was that? What was that about? Can you explain? In, in... Well, I, I, again, it, it, it's not to put down or dismiss or denigrate anything else out there, but you cannot, you cannot help but notice that what the Buddha taught has been adapted, accommodated, and embellished over twenty six hundred years. And so again, it's it's like changing, it's like changing a calculus class to geometry. You've just corrupted the calculus class, haven't you? But you're still teaching something useful. I mean, that, that's the best way that I could explain it. Yeah, Michael, but please. You had a specific name for it. What what, what was it? Abhidhamma. Oh, there's a there's a book in the in the Pali Canon which gives it authenticity. The third book of the of the Pali Canon, called the Abhidhamma. The Abhidhamma developed over many centuries, as Michael pointed out. But it began right after the Buddha died and was established at the Second Buddhist Council by those Theravadan Buddhists, if you will. Again, you know, history is always a bit sketchy, but who wanted to maintain some authenticity to what the human Buddha taught, but start introducing other more magical and mystical concepts, even the concept of um, an endless line of Buddhas extending into the to the past and in the future. And also it the 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 main influence to me of of what the Abhidhamma corrupted the most is dependent origination, which to me is the foundation of everything the Buddha taught. So Michael, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what I just said and you'll find that it's okay to contradict me. It doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> Alright, well, you know, I think we all Buddhism is a huge subject, 
And when we're talking about Abhidhamma, we're talking about dependent origination. These are these are big topics. So I think what I'll do more specifically is address Dominic's question of what are we talking about when we're talking about distortions of the original Buddha's teachings? The original Buddha's teachings, as best as we have them represented today, are found in the Sutta Pitika, which are the five books or the five collections of the Nikaya. The four, which are majorly known to us, you know, not including the Kaduka Nikaya, which is the middle length discourses, the connected discourses, the numerical discourses, and the long discourses, are essentially the stories and the teachings, as best as we have them, that were written down after the first Buddhist council that the Buddha taught. Now, there have been many Buddhist councils, and the Buddhist councils were happening anywhere from 70 to hundreds of years after the death of the Buddha. And what these Buddhist councils were collected for was essentially to agree as a body of Buddhists, of various schools of Buddhism that splintered off after the Parinibbana of the Buddha, to decide what is and is not canonical Buddhism. Unfortunately, what we've got left, which is considered Theravada Buddhism, isn't a direct splinter of the teachings of the Buddha. It's actually a, a splinter of another splinter. Yeah. And Theravada Buddhism is the last or really the only collection, a complete collection of Buddhism that remains today. The reason that we don't have a complete collection of the original Buddhist teachings is because it was a tradition. And after the Parinibbana of the Buddha, during the first council, they did their best to essentially write down and memorize what the Buddha taught. But what we've got left today, which is essentially Theravada Buddhism as the best representation of the Pali Canon, isn't really the Buddha's teachings itself. Not only do they include the Abhidhamma as part of the Pali Tipitika, which isn't the Buddha's teachings, it is essentially the commentary on the Buddha's teachings by others. Yeah. It's, again, the representation of a splinter of a splinter from the Buddha's teachings. Yeah. So it's important if we're going to be students of Buddhism and want to pursue the path that the Buddha taught, that we understand what is essentially the true Dhamma which is what essentially is the Buddha's teachings. Because going to one of the teachings of the Buddha that's found in the Sutta Pitika, the four factors of stream entry, and what is stream entry but the first stage of Buddhist enlightenment, the first of four, you've got four factors. One, which is associating with superior beings. And superior beings are essentially people that represent the ideals that we wish to pursue and follow, which are those that the Buddha instructed on. The second one is understanding what the true teachings are. What is the true Dhamma? That's what we're talking about today. That's what John is trying to emphasize, is what is in fact the true teachings. Because when we take a look at Mahayana Buddhism, or Zen Buddhism, or Chan, or Pure Land, or Tibetan Buddhism, these can be seen as interpretations or innovations on what the Buddha taught, but not necessarily what the Buddha taught. And when you take a look at what these teachings are and compare them to what the original Sutta Pitika is, and again, the Sutta Pitika is the best that we've got from what the Buddha taught. May or may not be what he taught, but it's the best that we've got. There are many contradictions. And though, and, and we're talking about Mahayana Buddhism and Zen, but when we're talking about parts of the Theravada Pali Canon, which can include the Visuddhimagga, which was written over a thousand years after the death of the Buddha, which in almost every aspect of the book 
contradicts what the Buddha taught. It is actually a teaching that teaches against Buddhism. Yes. Yeah. And when we're looking at the Abhidhamma, which is part of the Theravada Tipitika, and the Tipitika basically means the three baskets. What are the three baskets? One, one basket is the suttas, the suttapitika. The second basket is the vinaya, which is the rules and, and regulations that monastics follow. And then the third one is the Abhidhamma. And the Abhidhamma is a systematized collection of the Buddha's teachings that is really the formulation of commentaries, which is basically essentially what people said, okay, let's read the suttas. This is too difficult. This is too hard to peel this, the teachings off of. It's too difficult for people to understand. So we're going to just kind of rewrite it, systematize it, create our commentaries, and translate it in a way for people to be able to process. But in doing so, much of the original teachings of the Buddha were either distorted, changed, or lost. So we as practitioners, if we wish to actually realize the teachings of the Buddha, and what is realizing the teachings of the Buddha, but attaining Nibbana, and what is Nibbana but extinguishing? What is it extinguishing up? Craving. And why do we want to extinguish craving? Because craving is, as defined by the second noble truth, dukkha. It is our suffering. You know, and to John's point, this 12 links of dependent origination, which is critical to the Buddhist teachings, there are two links within that that result in us taking birth and experience dukkha. The first one is ignorance, which is misunderstanding what, you know, the nature of reality is. Ignorance of Four Noble Truths. And then the second one is craving. Without craving and without ignorance, we will continue to experience samsara in an endless cycle of birth and aging and sickness and pain and lamentation and sorrow and grief, sickness, aging, and death, only to re-experience it all over again. And lots of people that I've spoken to will take a look at this human rebirth and be like, ah, it's not that bad. But when you really understand what the Buddha is teaching and understand Buddha's cosmology and kama and rebirth, and you understand that this human realm may or may not be bad, but there are many other realms that we can be born into. And this human rebirth is very rare because it's a reflection of past kama. This is where I'll stop you, Michael. Various realms of tremendous suffering. This is where I'll stop you. And again, I think we're going to have some interesting conversations. I, I do not believe, again, from my restoration and my own interpretation of what the Buddha taught, that he taught anything of other lives or coming from other places here. I think he taught to understand that we have this life to awaken and to understand what it means to be a human being. Again, I think we'll have conversations about this maybe going forward, but in order, to me, in order to make sense of dependent origination and Four Noble Truths, it's in this life that we develop it, not for some future life. Uh, and again, we could argue that point that, that uh, I, the, the, there's a lot on my website about what I think the Buddha taught on karma and rebirth. But your explanation of the development of, of Buddhism and how it's come to be is excellent. It, it, Dominic, have you read the uh, article on the Pali Canon? Not yet. Uh, it's on, I'll send you a link. And leading, okay. leading into that, there's an article on, it's called Modern Buddhism, uh, a collection of... I think I remember the, the exact name of it. A collection of wrong views or something like that, but I'll send you the link to that. But it really just describes what Dominic said, that how the Pali Canon developed over time, how the different books came into existence, the oral tradition, which again, 
it leads to the only thing we can glean really out of the sutta with a with the right focus is looking for consistency. What did this an awakened human being would teach something I think would be simple to understand eventually, ultimately, but also there has to be some consistency through that, uh, and that's that's really what makes what starts to make sense, and it allows you to to recognize and abandon anything that's not consistent with that original foundation. I think you would agree with that, Michael. I think. Of course. Yeah. And Dominic, just be careful of what you're exposing yourself to because there's a lot of distortions out there. Yeah. And, you know, there are a lot of academic monks out there like Bhikkhu Bodhi and Analio and Sujato. Yeah, we don't bring any of that. Rata. We don't we don't bring don't any bring, of those teachings into into our, our Sangha. I it's never they referenced dismiss, and people they that dismiss want the Visuddhimagga and they dismiss the Abhidhamma as well. Yeah, so. people that it, it's been ever since I started teaching, which was about a dozen years ago. There's always been someone who wants to bring something else in, something they just read, or a, a poem by you know Mark Epstein or something like that, or, or Pema Chodron, and we just don't do it. We don't practice it here. We practice this practice to awaken in this lifetime, and that's all that we're interested in. And and it seems to work pretty well. So. <laughs> all right, I gotta I gotta get to uh, I gotta get to Tom. It's been a wonderful class. Uh, I hope to see you all uh, uh, Saturday, if not uh, Tuesday or next Thursday. So, peace, everyone. Thank you both. Thank Michael. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. I'll, I'll send you those Thank links, you. Dominic. Okay, great. Thanks. Sure. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming Buddha. Dot com. Thank you. Peace.